Welcome to the Gas Street Podcast. Our vision as a church is to be light for the city. We really hope you enjoy this message. I wonder if you can think of moments in your life where you have encountered God's presence. You've been somewhere where suddenly you are aware God is close, God is with you. I remember aged 11 going to this conference called New Wine, walking into this auditorium that had about 1,000 people and being blown away by the atmosphere. Could hear everyone worshipping passionately and what struck me, even aged 11, was that people here, they weren't just singing about God, they were singing to Him. There was a sense of a two-way connection. And at the end of the meeting, the guy who was leading it prayed for the Holy Spirit to come. And again, the only way I can describe it was that all of heaven broke loose. There were people falling on the floor, people crying, people shouting, people laughing. And although it was pretty overwhelming and unsettling, it felt right. It felt good. And I remember going up to the front and being prayed for to receive the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And even at age 11, I knew my life would never look the same. Fast forward a number of years, I remember being in America, having the opportunity to lead worship in a prison in Texas, in a maximum secure prison. And if you've ever watched any documentaries in American prisons, you know that they're crazy. And I was standing there in front of 500 men who were all serving long lifetime prison sentences for the most unimaginable and evil crimes, murder, rape, abuse, deception. Their actions had caused utter devastation to so many. And I remember standing thinking, how is this going to work? I'm here to lead worship, but how in the midst of such depravity are we going to have a sanctuary of worship? But as we began to sing, I was so struck by the sense of joy, passion. Again, the sense of God's presence, the same thing I experienced at New Wine Age 11. I was seeing it in this prison gymnasium. And I'll never forget singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound to save a wretch like me. And so many men had their arms held high. So many were weeping, crying as they sang these words. I was standing in a place where many were incarcerated, but spiritually they were free because of the power of Jesus. These, for me, are just two examples among many others where I've experienced God's closeness. And today we're beginning a series called Let This Holy Temple Glow. And if you've been around Gastric, you know that our vision is to be a church that would be light for the city and beyond. We want to be a city on a hill. We literally want this to be a temple that is glowing. And over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be a people of God's presence? How do we learn to effectively commune with God? How does what happens here on a Sunday impact the city and the surrounding areas of Birmingham beyond? And so that's the plan. But just to start us off, I want to do a little overview of the whole meta-narrative, the big story of God. So kind of buckle up, bear with. Uh, we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation, and then I want to pick out a few things that I think are important for us as a church. And so the big story, the big idea we see right from the beginning in Genesis to Revelation is this. God longs for relationship with us. God longs to make himself known. We see this at the very beginning in Genesis. 
And to understand Genesis, we need to understand that it was written in an ancient world where there were many narratives, many myths about how creation happened. One of the most popular myths, probably the most prominent myths, was the Enuma Elish from Babylon. And it was this idea that the gods were exhausted. They were working so hard. They had so much on their plates. And they, they took this complaint to Marduk, the kind of king of the gods, and said, we can't cope. We're exhausted. We're burnt out. And so he had this genius idea. I tell you what, why don't we make human beings, humankind, and they can be our slaves. They can do all the hard work while we sit back round the pool, sipping our pina coladas, and humankind will delegate all the work to them. That was many people in the ancient world's understanding of creation. So when you read Genesis and you see God's heart for humanity, you see the one true God actually working, creating over six days this beautiful universe that we get to inhabit. And then the pinnacle of creation, creating male and female. And what was the purpose of this creation? It was so that we could enjoy it. We could enjoy his presence and have a home to live in. But this home was a place that God could also live with us as his creation. God didn't create humanity in order to control human beings. God created us so that he could commune with us. It was a radical idea. And it's still radical today that the God of the heavens and the earth wouldn't call us slaves. Rather, he'd call us his sons and his daughters. In Genesis 3, verse 8, we see this beautiful picture of God walking with humankind. It says this, Genesis 3, verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This word for walk, the Hebrew word is hithelech. And it literally means to walk back and forth. It's this sense of a continual, ongoing, interactive relationship. This isn't like a one-off moment where God, ooh, suddenly is walking with Adam and Eve. No, this was an ongoing thing. And we see again that God's vision for us as human beings was to be in relationship with us. He wasn't an egotistical tyrant who created us just to control us and dominate us. But he desires intimacy with us. And theologians will argue the point that actually we need to see the Garden of Eden, not just as beautiful vegetation and filled with amazing wildlife and creation. Actually, the Garden of Eden is a sanctuary. It's a dwelling place where God can meet with his creation and meet with us as human beings. The theologian Gordon Wenham writes this, The Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary. That is a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. Many of the features of the garden may also be found in later sanctuaries, particularly the tabernacle or Jerusalem temple. These parallels suggest that the garden itself is understood as a sort of sanctuary. 
So right at the start, we see Genesis, this sense of a sanctuary, a dwelling place for God and humanity. But then fast forward, we see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Whenever they'd meet with God, they'd build a temple to commemorate, to know this is a moment where humans have met with their maker. But in Moses and the people of Israel, we see this remarkable story that you'll no doubt know from the Prince of Egypt or hopefully more importantly, you know from the Bible, um, where God rescues the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt and resettles them eventually in this promised land where they can dwell, they can make home, they can build a new culture. And God gives Moses this design for a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. But over this time, we see God meeting with the people of Israel through a cloud by day and a fire by night, these symbols of his presence. And at different points in this story, in this narrative around the Exodus and the journey towards the promised land, we see this Hebrew word, hithelek, being used again. In Leviticus 26 verse 12, God says to the people of Israel, I will walk, hithelek, among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Then again in Deuteronomy 23 verse 14, for the Lord your God moves, Hithelech, about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. So grab this, that in the same way God was walking continually, moving back and forth with mankind in Eden, so too with the Israelites and Moses, God was moving amongst them, walking with them, blessing them, interacting with them. Ultimately, we see a relational God. David Peterson, the theologian, says this, Moses' tabernacle was intended to provide a portable expression of God's presence with his people, to be located at the very centre of Israel's life on the march from Sinai to the Promised Land. The covenant relationship graciously established by God contained at its heart the assurance that he would be their God that they would be his people. Consequently, he'd be uniquely with them to fulfill his purposes and bring blessings to them. Move forward from Moses and the tabernacle, we see David. And we've been looking at this over the last number of weeks where David grabs the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God and brings it back to Jerusalem and creates this tent of meeting. And then David has this vision for a temple which is ultimately fulfilled through his son Solomon, where he wants to have a, a holy place, no expense spared, a house of God. And so they build this temple and when they come to dedicate it, Solomon prays this prayer. And what happens after they dedicate this temple? We see that God fills it with a fire and with a cloud. Again, these symbols of his presence this sense of God interacting and walking and working with his people. 2 Chronicles 7 verse 1, it says this, When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And this is one example amongst many in the Old Testament where we see God meeting with his people in the tent, in the temple, in the tabernacle. And then we see Jesus. Jesus steps into humanity. And again, Jesus begins to walk with us, much like uh, these images of, of God walking with humankind through the Old Testament. 
And we see this amazing conversation Jesus has with a woman, a Samaritan woman at a well in John 4, where Jesus begins to redefine what true worship is. He says this, Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In this moment, Jesus is redefining the geography of worship that the centre of worship would no longer be a temple in Jerusalem where everyone would have to gather to, but actually now the centre of worship would be the person of Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus and the power of His Spirit, we can worship God at all times and in all places, anywhere and everywhere you can encounter God on the football pitch, in the pub, walking through creation, around the dinner table, we can meet with Jesus. Again, it's a nod back to the vision of Eden where God in the cool of the day was walking with Adam and Eve. And we see the apostles and the early church, yes, they would gather in the temple. This is still a important part of their rhythm of worship, but they would suddenly see God at work in houses, on the streets, everyday places, God's spirit and power working in miraculous ways. And then fast forward to the very end, to Revelation. And we see again the future, where it's all heading, where and how we'll spend eternity. Revelation 21, we read this. The Apostle John has this remarkable vision and says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So Revelations 21 and 22, the final two chapters of Scripture, mirror Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of Scripture, In Genesis, we see the Garden of Eden, this garden sanctuary. In Revelation, we see a garden city. But again, the plan is that we will dwell in perfect union with God. There'll be no boundaries, there'll be no borders, there'll be no limits. We'll see Him face to face and we'll be walking with God in the cool of the day. It's a crazy thought, but that is where this is all heading for us. So, take a deep breath. What does this mean for us? Why quickly scan through the meta-narrative of Scripture? How does this affect us, Birmingham 2023, or wherever you're watching online from? Well, I believe God has a plan and a purpose for our church. And I believe there are things that God wants to invite us into that we could lean into the more of what He has for us. And the first thing I believe we need to recognise and understand when we gather, and this is God's heart for us, that we step into a place of encounter. You've not walked into a nice brick building with nice music, oh, lovely choir, um, oh, some interesting teaching and some nice coffee or whatever it is. No, you've not stepped in just to kind of a thing. You've stepped into a place where we believe God is present and God is here to meet with you. We believe that the one true living God who created the heavens and the earth is here today and by His Spirit, He can transform lives. He can literally take people out of death and bring them into glorious life. He can bring healing 
He can bring hope. He can break the powers of addictions. He can give a sense of a purpose. He can do anything and all things for, because for God, nothing is impossible. And when we step into church, we need to be expectant that this is what we're stepping into, a place of encounter following Jesus. It's not a lifestyle choice. Following Jesus is not some kind of insurance to pluck us out of hell and give us eternal life. No, following Jesus is a life-giving, ongoing relationship that brings life in all its fullness. Psalm 16 verse 11 says this, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I don't know what you think of when you think about coming to church or spending time reading the Bible or in prayer or meeting with others to talk about God. I wonder, if, is joy one of the first words that comes to your mind? Because it should be. God has created us for joy and to enjoy His presence and His gifts. Theologian James Torrance says that we can view worship in two ways. One is we view worship as a task. And I wonder if the tragedy is many of us think of following Jesus as Christianity as a task, something we have to do. You know, I have to go to church weekly. I have to read the Bible. I've got to pray you know, it used to be you could just pray when you're in desperate need or you know, in the last minute when you're desperate that your team wouldn't concede a winning goal in a football match. But now, you know, 24-7, are we meant to pray all the time? And then people talk about fasting. And then I heard someone talk about giving. I've got to give my money to the church. When we view worship as a task, what we do is we put ourselves at the centre and the validity of our worship is purely dependent on how well we do, how well we're behaving, how well we're keeping up with all these rules and expectations we put on ourselves. And I'm telling you this, if you view Christianity as a task and purely a duty, it will lead to one place, exhaustion, despair, discouragement, despondency. Because you in yourself are not enough. We can never earn our way into God's presence. It's not like, you know, teacher's pet. You know, if you behave well enough, God the Father is gonna throw open his arms and say, oh, because you prayed at the prayer meeting for an hour and a half, now you're welcome into my presence. No. We need to understand that our worship is dependent on Jesus Christ. And so James Torrance says, actually, we need to view worship as a gift. And when we understand worship as a gift, when we understand that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we put him at the centre of our worship, we're invited into relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We suddenly get swept up into this dance, this walk, as it were, where God begins to pour out his presence upon us. And so time with God is life-giving. In worship, we find that there is healing, there is joy, there is peace, there's a sense of vision and purpose, there's adventure. It's exhilarating. When we spend time with God, we're transformed. That is what God longs for. Last Wednesday, I'd had a rough couple of days. I was exhausted and it was sort of about seven o'clock and I was just beginning to think, oh, I should really go to the altar. As you know, we've started up these prayer and worship nights, Wednesday night, 7.30 here. 
alongside our Tuesday morning prayer gatherings because we're longing to grow what it means to be a community of prayer and worship. And I was tired, I was jaded, I was a bit frustrated. I'd been a bit ratty with the family, with the kids. And to be honest, the last place I wanted to go was a prayer meeting. And I had this internal dialogue, like I could go to the altar or I could stay back and watch the final episode of the Beckham documentary. And I was like, I know that will feed my soul. I know that will be a joy, that will be life-giving. And so I kind of had this internal battle, but then I realised, you know, I am actually paid as the pastor of this church to go to things <laughs> like the altar, so, so I better turn up. So I got in the car, you know, slightly begrudgingly driving in, and we meet in the coal house just here, and as I walked in, we had about 40 people gathered together to worship. It just felt like the best choice. It felt such a good place to be. Felt like some of those weights, those worries, those woes just lifted and I experienced God's closeness, experienced God's peace, just spending 90 minutes worshipping and listening to others worship and just sitting in the stillness and the quiet, praying, bringing before God the concerns. It was amazing. I felt lifted. It felt like the weight of the world was taken off me. So many of us throughout our weeks were being bent out of shape, were being stretched and pulled in lots of different directions. You're carrying the worries of the world. The world is pressing down on you. This pressure of what it means to flourish and thrive and it's exhausting. And my prayer, my vision, but I believe God's heart is that you'd understand when we gather here on a Sunday, of course it can happen at any time, any place, but there's something about the rhythm and the habit of every Sunday gathering together, stepping into this place where we say, God, I want you to press the reset button. I want to centre my life not on you. I want to lay aside the worries of the world and take up the joy that you have for me. And we find that as we step into a place of encounter, we're changed. We're given everything we need for the week ahead. I believe God wants to walk amongst us in new and beautiful ways. That's why I love what was just happening in the worship, just creating space for God to meet with us. Suddenly, we're all kneeling here at the front. Why are we doing that? Um, because we just want to be open to what God is doing because we need to encounter Him. It is the hope for the world, encounters with Christ. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing is this. I believe when we step into gastry, we need to understand that we're stepping into a time of commissioning. A time of commissioning. God is always about filling us up and sending us out, anointing and empowering us to do the things that he's put us on planet Earth to do. Look at Genesis. Adam and Eve, God moves amongst them, but he gives them a role, a purpose. It says this, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So Adam and Eve had this amazing role of overseeing creation. They got to name all the animals. Imagine the fun of that, like this weird kind of spotted cat-like thing. And oh, we'll call that a leopard. They, they had the joy of doing all of that. Because when God shares himself and walks amongst us, it's to anoint us and equip us to outwork our purpose. Again, Moses and the Israelites, God makes this covenant you know, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, but there's a purpose and a role for you. You're going to be blessed. 
You're going to know me close, fire by night, cloud by day. You're going to see miraculous provision, miraculous signs. But all of this blessing is not just for you. You're blessed to be a blessing so that all the world will know that there is one God, Yahweh. And that's what God does. And we see it in the apostles in the early church. Jesus walks on the earth and He appoints 12 apostles and they're given a role and a responsibility to carry the name of Jesus, to carry the good news of the gospel all over the world. And we read that they're to be a light to the Gentiles. Again, the message is that this salvation narrative isn't just for the Jews, it's for all people. And we're here today. And some of you from Iran and Afghanistan, you know this more than most, that we're here today because people carried the gospel outside of their comfort zones. They risked their lives so that the world could know that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. When God met with people, He empowered them and He sent them out. I love in Acts 22, we see this moment where the Apostle Paul, he steps into the temple. They still maintain that rhythm of going to the temple to pray and worship. And he had this remarkable encounter with God. Look at this, starting at verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul is in the temple worshipping, God meets with him. He's in a trance. You don't quite know how to describe it. God begins to speak to him and says, now is the time for you to go and carry this message to the Gentiles. And Paul is obedient. And the future of the church is changed forever. I wonder how God is going to empower us today. I wonder how God is going to begin to commission us to outwork our callings in our places of work, our places of study amongst our friends and our neighbours. When God meets with us, it's never just for us, it's always for others as well. April the 11th, 1906, under the leadership of William Seymour, a group met in a rundown old Methodist building on Azusa Street in California, America. William Seymour was the son of recently freed slaves. And he grew up at a time of incredible racial injustice, oppression and violence. The Ku Klux Klan were running wild, killing, abusing many. The Jim Crow laws meant that racial segregation was mandatory. But here on Azusa Street, the Spirit of God one night was poured out and people began to gather. And what happened is people gathered from all ages and stages, men, women, people from every race, every creed, every colour, the rich, the poor, all gathered together and they were all encountering the presence of God. The Spirit was being poured out in amazing ways. Some of their gatherings would last 10, 12 hours, sometimes even days. An overwhelming sense of God's presence. But the amazing thing that happened out of these encounters was that many men and women were commissioned and sent to preach the gospel in countries all over the world. To this day now, it's estimated that there are 300 million Pentecostals in our world. 
It's the fastest denomination within the church still today. And of those 300 million people carrying the fire of heaven, so many of them can trace their roots back to Azusa Street, 1906. Oh God, would you do it again? Oh God, would you pour out your spirit on us so that we would experience and understand the depth of your love for us, but that we would be commissioned and sent to share and demonstrate that love in sacrificial, beautiful, creative ways all around us. And understand this, Gastry, our vision here is not to see buildings filled with people. Our vision is to see people filled with God. Because when that happens, the world will never be the same. We gather to encounter God, we're commissioned and then we scatter to carry this fire. The final thing I wanna say is this. When we gather, we are reminded that we're part of a family. We're part of a family. Perhaps the most defining metaphor of church in the New Testament is that of a family. And again, all these moments I've shared, we see God interact with a people. God walks in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. He creates man and says, it's not good for man to be alone. So God is interacting, connecting with humankind. And then the Israelites, God rescues not Moses. He rescues a nation. And he leads a nation of people, men, women, children, through the Red Sea. The early church, Jesus pulls together 12. They create a new fabric of community and family and connection. And then fast forward to the end, to the eternal worship that we're going to get swept up in. What do we see? Revelation 5 verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. You see, when we stand before Jesus... We won't all be alone, you know, with our AirPods. It's not going to be like a silent disco. You know, oh, I prefer Graham Kendrick. Oh, no, no, Bethel for me. No, 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 it's all about the hymns, Charles Wesley. No, 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 no. We are all going to be together, multitudes, angels, living creatures, all of creation, all of humankind from ever and a day, gathering together before the Lamb, singing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For you introverts here, I don't know how it's quite going to work. It's going to be overwhelming, but maybe there's going to be a little shelter where you can just go and rock quietly on your own for a thousand years and then here we go again. God is working through a people and the church needs to be a community that we build one another up. When we turn up on a Sunday, we come not just to get, but to give, to love. There's this amazing book I've been reading called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church and it looks at the incredible rise of the early church in the Roman Empire. And it talks about their worship gatherings and how it was in the midst of their worship and their prayer that God knit together this incredible sense of community. And uh, someone writes about the early church 
says this, Oregon and Caesarea saw it as natural that believers, rich and poor, would stand so close together in prayer that they would overhear each other. So you can imagine that, you know, you're probably standing a bit close to someone now maybe or sitting and you were aware of their singing. Some of you is great, some of you less so. But you're aware of each other. It impacts our experience, which is beautiful. But they'd be close to each other. And because of what they heard, they could engage in acts of mutual aid, meeting each other's needs. Origen refused to dismiss these overhearings as coincidental. When the Christians gather to pray, he says in his treatise, prayer, angels are present and act together with us. A doctor is standing by one who is sick and is praying for health. It is manifest that he would be moved to heal the one who prays. A wealthy person hears the prayer of a poor person who lifts up an appeal to God on account of his necessity. It is obvious that he will fulfill the prayer of the poor person. I love that. Imagine it, the, the gathering together, someone's crying out, Lord, have mercy, provide food for my family, help. And someone's standing next to them who's got abundance of resources and they're not there thinking, yes, Lord, please provide for the needs. God, have mercy. They're saying, do you know what? I've got enough bread for me and for you. Here you go. A doctor is standing there. Someone's saying, ah, these headaches, they won't go. It's like, do you know what? I don't know what the equivalent of paracetamol was back then, but I've got some magic mushrooms, they'll help you, whatever it is. And they would serve and help one another. <laughs> and just like that, I've killed the point completely. <laughs> and you will remember nothing else of everything I've said this morning, apart from magic mushrooms. But the point is this, when we gather to look up, God is also calling us to look around. And the vision has to be that when we pray for one another, when you pray for someone who's in anguish and in need, you don't just say a prayer. What would it look like to say, do you know what? I want to share more than a prayer. I want to share my dining room table with you. I want to open up my home, come for dinner. I want to share something of my heart with you. I want to meet up more regularly to, to encourage you and to stand with you in this moment of need. We can all do that. We all need to do that. Don't wait for a staff member to open up their homes. You do it for one another and it will become contagious and will begin to become the family of God and God will move more beautifully and sweetly amongst us as we better love one another. I end with this. My parents modelled this brilliantly. They were leading a church in High Wycombe and I remember a time where this young man had a radical conversion. He'd come from a chaotic background. His life was in a mess and he'd become a Christian and he had had to leave a whole group of people because of this and he had no one. He was literally going to be made homeless and he turned up at my parents' house and my mum said, look, come sleep with us tonight. Come stay here tonight. So he moved into a house. It's going to be a short-term thing. It ended up being a long-term thing. Over years, this guy lived with us. He became part of our family. My parents consider him now as the fourth son, probably the favourite son. But that's what family does. When someone's in need, you just open up your home. And I believe that's what the church needs to do. That when we gather and we encounter God, we experience his commissioning. But suddenly, because of family, strangers are welcomed into our homes and become like brothers and sisters. And it becomes the most compelling narrative to a world who's desperate for love and are looking in all the wrong places. Let this holy temple 
glow. Amen. Amen. Why don't we um, stand? We're going to have to finish because it's one o'clock. Kids need to be picked up. And uh, so can I encourage, as we stand, as the band maybe come up, we're going to end with a final song of worship. Um, if you're a parent, go and pick up your children. Um, but for the you know, God's been moving amongst us. And as we sing this song, what I'm going to say, look, obviously parents get your kids. But if you're here... And you're like, God, I just want more of you. I'm in. I want to I wanna be part of this adventure. I want a new commissioning, new anointing for everything I'm called to do. I'd love you just to come to the front. And we're just going to pray for you. I know we're coming to the front during the end of the worship. But if you want a fresh commissioning and anointing to do all that God's calling you to do in your places of work, study, home, friendship groups, just quickly come now. And we're going to pray for you as we sing our final song. So wherever you are, Come out to the front. I said, just come. If you want a fresh commissioning, God's presence on your life, wherever you are, come. Okay. So only three people want to carry the fire of heaven. Come on, if you want God, come. We're going to pray. We're going to worship. Thanks for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. If you want to find out more, visit our website, gastric.org, or follow us on Instagram at Gastric Church.